Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. phone on mute. I'm getting feedback. I'd like to welcome everyone to Ancestors Footprints. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and this show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, tonight's show will focus on attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, you're probably wondering, why is this genealogy show focusing on this particular topic? Well, you know, sometimes we start digging through our family tree and discover certain behaviors in our family that maybe we just ignored. Well, you know, it's one of these topics that we need to talk about. Now, I know there's some loyal fans out there that have read this book and are listening tonight. And fans, I want you to call in, to call in to ask questions, and I'll let you know exactly when that will take place. Well, my guests tonight are authors Audrey Jones and Dr. Larry Jones. This is a very loving couple. They've been together for 45 years, and they are parents, grandparents, and just fun-loving mates who enjoy each other's company. They, after 40 years, living with three generations of real-life attention deficit hyperactivity chosen to share the challenges and lessons learned with everyone. So let me give just a warm welcome to Audrey Jones and Dr. Larry Jones. Welcome to the show, Audrey and Larry. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us. We're very excited to talk to your audience this evening. We're happy to be well, here. I'm inside. I'm just so happy to have both of you because I'm telling you, this is probably a topic that ch- Teachers, parents, grandparents don't quite understand. So help us understand, why did you decide to write a family memoir on this particular topic? Well, we had our lives are captured in this book. We wanted, once we understood that ADHD underlies lay off many things that were going on in our family, many poor decisions and expensive errors that we had made. We wanted, we 
thought back over our stories, which we remember vividly, because if anyone reads the book, there are vivid stories in there about danger and also about fun and about family and about love. So we wanted to tell our stories as a way for families to understand something that's so clinical all the time. It's very clinical the way it's presented by all the PhDs and scientists. We want people to understand from just reading stories, laughing at stories, maybe crying sometimes, and then put together some what we did wrong and what we suggest you do better in the future. So yeah, that's and why you we know what? Well, I understand that. I mean, one of the things that you will hear genealogists encourage people to do is to tell their stories. And sometimes it's the bitter with the sweet. Sometimes there are things that maybe we don't want to tell, but it is a part of our family history. And so we do tell, and we write, you, you have done just that. You've put that story in writing. So tell us so that we could really understand what is ADHD. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder is a neurological disorder of disruption in the way that the chemicals between the nerve cells interact. It, it gets in those spaces between those cells and doesn't get removed like it's supposed to. Because, and this leads to the imbalances and the things that we see associated with hyperactivity disorder from uh, distraction, uh, impulsivity, the uh, super motor reaction that we see with, that some folks have just can't sit still, constantly jittery, you know, pecking your fingers or constantly moving your toes. Something has to be in constant motion with those folks. But it does tend to separate in, out into two specific types, which are the impulsive type, where folks just do things that a mate or a friend would say, why did he do that? Or a parent. And the other type, which is true hyperactivity, the kid in the classroom who just can't sit still, who can't wait his turn, and just seems not to be able to follow the the standard uh, requirements in the classroom. And so when you say that it's a neurological disorder, I mean, we hear all the time, oh, this kid can't stop fidget, fidgeting, or they put the kid out of the class because the kid is too disruptive. Why don't we know more about this, or do we talk more about ADHD? Um, we know a lot more, particularly, and that was one of the reasons in terms of writing the book, was that a lot more information is currently available than was available at the time when our children were growing up, particularly at the time when we started to see problems with them in school. Um, where we are right now, everything is available, the therapy through either a psychologist, licensed clinical social worker, all of this is available now. There's medication, there are behavior modification techniques and programs that the schools are now aware of that can help these students to be successful. Because they, most of the time, are very gifted students, but we just have to be able to get them calm enough and to pay close enough attention for those gifts to emerge. And so, uh, at, at, go ahead, Audrey. It's not talked about by families. You have this disconnect between what's recognized in the school and the parent sees a different child at home. In the classroom, a child is disruptive because there are 20 children and they want all the attention. At home, the child's an only child. He has all the attention or she has all the attention. So when the school says... I'm having a problem with Mary because she's disrupting our classroom. And you say, not my sweet Mary, because at home she's perfect. My little girl does everything I ask her to do, or she's just really creative, but different things that parents say and the disconnect, and that's the disconnect that leads to 
just that's the disconnect that leads to the problems that we um, see see that we wanted to bridge the gap between. We wanted to bridge the gap between what was going on in the home and how that parent saw their child and what was going on in the school because our stories are about what happened at home, not what happened in the classrooms. Okay. So back to what you were saying, though, if it's a neurological disorder, is this something that's passed on or will only one person in the family have it? It is typically passed on, and that's one of those things. That's the real connection between genealogy and ADHD, because everything is passed through the genes. As we look at our roots, we really can trace certain uh, inheritance patterns through families. I mean, it could be a gray lock, a formation on the face, a mole. All of those things are inherited through patterns of genes. And similarly, ADHD is passed down through families. Typically, and I saw this many times in my practice, the child would come in for these behavioral problems at school and you would find that the parent had a similar reaction in terms of not being able to sit still or to pay full attention to what was being said. So that's really that connection that it does pass through generations, just like in our family. It appears, though, this, as I was explaining before, this inattentive type is what I have. That's what my three sons have, and it appears to be what two, at least two of the grandchildren have as well. None of us are hyperactive. We don't you know, just have that problem of not being able to sit still. So it does tend to run in families, and frequently will you'll see one type versus the other. Now, if both parents have it. You could have one hyperactive, one inattentive. So you could end up with some combination in their offspring. Some could be in attendance, mm-hmm. the hyperactive, or one could seem to, it could still go either way. But, you know, at what age do you start seeing these behaviors, the inattentiveness or the hyperactivity? The hyperactivity, obviously, is the thing that's seen most, is most dramatic, and is usually picked up earliest. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents, when you really talk to parents and are able to get a good history, most attentive parents are able to pick up those traits as early as two and three years old. Wow. But mm-hmm. in terms of treatment, particularly if the patient or child needs to go on medication, we try not to start any medications before five years of age. And we only want to use those medications to be able to control the behavior such that the child is successful in education and in the classroom and getting homework done, those sorts of things. And if the child can produce enough focus on their own and enough training to be able to concentrate adequately, medication in some cases may not have to be used. But it will generally require a significant amount of counseling. So is there a point at which a child may grow out of this, or are you saying that medication uh, and therapy is needed for a, a long period of time? Maybe so needed be, for a long period of time. I was trained is that if you grow out of it in your adolescent years. But clearly over time we've learned that it is a lifelong illness. So you just use the word illness. Well, is this I really an illness? Am, we're really trying to get away from terms like disorder, illness, because people with ADHD frequently have many, many very positive talents. From your artists, many of your, particularly your creative artists, your actors, your sculptors, all of those folks have usually some symptoms related to ADHD, from the hyperactivity or the impulsivity, the inattention, 
the easy frustration, but on the positive side, they have those positive traits such as versatility and creativity. Um, people with ADHD tend to see the world a little bit differently than everybody else. So we can come up frequently with solutions that are very different from the average person, particularly like myself, since I was diagnosed so late in life. So we tend to be very intuitive, very passionate, and frequently can be very adaptive. But with frustration, particularly frustration, gets in the way of that adaptability. So that's why between medication and counseling, becomes very important to control those traits of hyperactivity, impulsivity, inattention, and, as I said, specifically frustration. The goal is to stabilize those, let's say, potentially uh, less positive traits, such that once everything gets stable, then the much more positive traits come out, the empathy, the confidence, Passion, and that too is well, passed you, on from generation to generation. Well, you said something, and and I think that it does come across as very positive when you spoke of the many talents and the gifts, and how through medication and counseling you can control the activities so that those talents can flourish. And and that's such a positive way of looking at how you can tackle the whole issue of ADHD. Well, Audrey, tell us yeah. about some of those talents. And as a parent, what did you see yourself doing? Well, it was it's one of the important things for us since we didn't recognize at first that we were dealing with ADHD. We didn't. You know, we were dealing with certain behaviors in classroom, and we were working on correcting those. Or, But it was the most important thing, one of the most important things a parent can do is encourage whatever they find their child enjoys, what stable, what, what they can pay attention to, whatever that is, if it's singing, if it's writing, if it's drawing a picture, if it's jumping up and down, if it's being in a gym class, if it's playing a sport. But those are things that a parent has to support. Those, those are parenting opportunities to help your child deal with frustration and inattention because if you're on the basketball team, you're going to be attentive for those 90 minutes or whatever. And it's, But the parent has to be the one to say, to continue to encourage, continue to support even when things may not be going the best in school, that cannot be a punishment to take away the things that the children enjoy where they have a chance to use their gifts and talents. But when you speak of the, the role of the parent, what happens when you the parent may come in conflict with the school so that the mm -hmm. school is saying, well, this kid is just too disruptive, and the behavior... They want to take away uh, what you consider the positive behaviors and punish the child rather than recognize that something really is going on. That's when the big word advocacy comes in. It's one okay. thing to go to school and listen. It's another thing to be your child's champion. If, mm -hmm. if you have, we call a diagnosis of ADHD, a diagnosis of hope, on a path to healing. So therefore, yeah. to see that information, it's important for the parent to arm themselves with as much information. If they don't understand too much clinical, too much of the clinical side, but books like our book, Falling Through the Ceiling, is for parents to understand at a parent level so that you mm -hmm. have ammunition to negotiate and work with the school in order to find the best outcomes for your child. Some, mm -hmm. And that requires really being your child's best advocate. Don't you think, Larry? I would agree wholeheartedly. And one of the positives about the book is that we go through in the last chapters of the book 
things for parents to know, both for the mothers as well as for the fathers. Because what frequently I saw happen in the practice, because I always had a significant number of these families in my practice, that I might even pick up that the child probably had ADHD before the parents recognized it and before it became a problem at school. So, I mean, I try to sort of ask the questions to get them to think about it in order to be able to, on the next visit, really delve into a little more, you know, into a little more depth. But it becomes a crisis for that family when the child gets put out of school or gets multiple trips to the principal's office and so forth. So at that point, there has to be some action on the part of the parent. And then it's when the learning curve really begins. And I really try to work with parents to be able to get them to understand these are the positive steps that you need to take. These are the parameters that you need to set for the child. But on a once a month or once every six week visit with the pediatrician is not adequate. That's where the counseling comes in because the counselor works with the child to actually show them their behaviors and works with them in a problem-solving way to control those behaviors and to recognize those behaviors most importantly. But you're, you're speaking of the child, but what about the adult? Or let's look at the, the college student. Oh, Who will advocate for the college students? Um, college students, I mean, they're not recognized prior to entering college. I mean, hopefully most kids by that time have had, um, have been recognized. And when they're recognized prior to going to college, the, uh, the programs at the college can be used for the child. There's the support uh, systems within the school. They have counselors at every college to assist children and young adults who have ADHD to be successful. So, but the child, young person has to seek out that help. They have to ask for it. It's not Mm -hmm. going to be, you know, the people that department in the sports service, they're not going to come to the child. They don't reach out. Recently, Larry is beginning his practice uh, preparing himself to practice as an ADHD coach, and that's one of those people that really is helpful with the adolescent and the college student person when they're on their own and the adult who needs somebody to support them and not their parent because they are now a young adult or fully an adult recognizing that they have some ADHD behaviors that they need to control. So we, I, I asked the parent, I got permission to give a little bit about a situation. We talked to a family where the child was a junior in college and just went into anxiety attacks and depression, stopped going to class after doing very well for the first year and a half, but just hit the wall. All of a sudden, the class size was too big. Everything happened. The first, When they first went to the school, the school said, prescribed anxiety drugs, depression drugs. But then finally someone said, we think you need to have a full battery of tests for ADHD. And so at this point we're at the point now where they're about to go do that, you know, schedule, and that's all through the college. But if they had not reached out, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So so that's what happens with the college student and the young adult. And there are all kinds of adult behaviors that are uh, difficulty with long-term, establishing long-term relationships, difficulty with establishing working career paths, problems mm-hmm. with violence, short-tempered, short-fused, all these kinds of behaviors that you see in people. And everybody doesn't have ADHD, don't get me wrong. But many adults do have behaviors that they're unable to control, and particularly around their impulsivity to do things. So uh, that's what happens with the adult, and adults seek out the same kind of system. Right. Yes, we're going to take just a quick break and come back. 
And I want you to say more about this particular issue and also talk about those people that may be enablers, people that kind of make excuses for the behaviors that they're seeing and not uh, advocate or help that person uh, when they need to. So we're going to take just a quick break and then come right back, okay? Sure. talk a little bit more about that uh, proverbial wall. And by the wall, what we mean is that in typically in for students, since we were on that topic, they get to a point where they've done well up to a certain point. This could be in high school, it could be in college, it could be in graduate school or in the workplace, where things just seem to fall apart. The success, the insight, the getting things done in a timely manner, everything just seems to sort of fall apart. And in order to get past that wall, it usually requires some professional help in terms of a counselor, um, a psychiatrist, and frequently folks now, life coaches, really can help with that same sort of an issue, particularly folks who have experience with ADHD. And what they're able to do is to sort of allow the person to step back, let them establish their goals, what it is they're trying to do, short-term, long-term, and then help them to set a some key stepwise, time-limited performance measures in order to achieve that goal. You know, typically for the average student, you know, they want to be able to at least maintain a B average in a class. So that counselor via support services or that ADHD coach is going to encourage that student to go and talk to that instructor, not just after the test, but before the test to be assured that they are grasping what the professor wants them to grasp. Um, you know, proactively going in order to one show interest and that professor is going to know you better. So those are the kinds of things that you really want to do and that are really required 
to sort of get past that wall. But if it's not taken seriously, in particular, unfortunately, sometimes the student themselves may not know what's going on and will not reach out for help, and things continue to sort of crash and burn. So for me, to give an example, my wall I hit in medical school. I'd done very well in high school, done very well in college, but in medical school, everything fell apart. I couldn't stay away from class. I couldn't take very good notes and really had to sort of step back and sort of figure out what the approach is going to be because, I mean, this is all I ever wanted to do. How am I going to be successful at this? But that's an example of what we mean by the that proverbial wall. So what about people, let's say, in your life, they love you, they're observing what's going on, but they're really not helping you. What can you say to those people? The enablers. The enablers. Well, first of all, you have to understand what it means to be an enabler because I was an enabler for many, many years. An enabler thinks they're doing the best they can because they're helping the person to continue to fix their mistakes. Pick up, pick it up, sweep it up, do what you need to do, get them out of jail, help them pay the child support, do what you need to do. Because, And as an enabler, you feel good because you're helping your child. And it usually gets pretty serious as they mature past high school and college, attend college, finish college, get a good job, not get a good job. But the, um, the enabler thinks that they're doing good things for the child. Otherwise, you're not an enabler. Enablers always think that they're doing something to help. But, in fact, so, what they're doing is delaying the person taking responsibility for their own life, which is the only way to live resiliently is to take your own responsibility. Do you understand what I mean? To take the re- I understand. Well, we have a caller on the line. Hello, caller. You're live, 226. Hi. Um, I Hello. have a question uh, about the family dynamics and when you were going through your ADH uh, chronicles at home. Did you feel as if there was a stigma uh, attached to ADHD? And is that why... It took you so long to determine that's what the issues were? With our children, the first thing that came up was a reading problem with our oldest child, which we addressed immediately. He went into a special reading program to the special school district, and that continued for years. The idea of ADHD did not come up because he was of this inattentive type. There's no problem in the classroom. He just did not seem to perform at his best on tests or in general, particularly reading comprehension. So that's, you know, but to answer your question in terms of, yes, there is a stigma associated with it, and that stigma needs, we need to destigmatize that for several reasons. One, as a parent going through this, the, the biggest Thing that I find that makes parents not want to act with all the information they have available is based upon what they feel is going to be a stigma or a label. You have to, one, confirm the diagnosis, that this is truly what the child has, and then come up with a plan in terms of how best the child can be helped in order to be successful. But the goal is for the child to be successful and then to become an independent adult. So we have to get past all of those stigmas. We have to be able to discuss this with other parents who have similar issues because you are not alone. There are many, many other parents in this group, and when you look on the Internet around ADHD with groups such as uh, CHAD, which is a national organization, you can find all sorts of parents groups where you can sit, listen, and discuss this with other individuals who have been through these experiences. Because the ultimate goal is to help the child. And we have to break down those barriers for that to happen. 
Okay. Well, thank you, caller. We have another caller online, 862. You're live. you have a question or a comment? Yeah. Well, I have a comment. My name is Lois. I'm a friend of Vernon. Hi, uh, Bradley. Hi, Audrey. How are you? Great. Uh, and and my, my, well, I, had, I read their book, and one of the things that I found so amazing for years, you know, and after reading that book and one of my grandkids was diagnosed with ADD, I realized that I had lived with it. I'm 70-some years old now, but when I found this out, I guess I was about 72 or 73 or 4, and I read Audrey's, uh, I mean, um, Audrey and Dr. Jones' book, and I could relate to a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff in there. And I just wanted to say that was, that's an excellent book. Thank you. Okay, well, thank very much. you. Thank so you very happy you much for calling Please in. share it with all of your Please friends. Please share it with your friends and your family. I, I will. I will. I will. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Well, you know, I read your book also. I read it, and I'm I'm telling you, some of the behaviors that you describe in the book, you see them. And you just mentioned, you know, about the enabler. And right. it is so easy to become an enabler. And so difficult. You just think you're trying to do the right thing. <laughs> And it's hard to break the habit. And it, it, yes. it's a breaking a habit. It's a redirection of how you work with particularly your adults to make their decisions their executive functioning tools, to help them in broaden their executive functioning tools, their decision-making. When they have to make a serious decision, help them identify and make decisions the way that you know you have learned to make decisions. And they understand that you'll be there to support them because you've always been there to support. But mm-hmm. as helping them to improve their own decision-making skills, we call it their toolbox, to get the more things into their toolbox that relate to how they make decisions. Everybody doesn't make decisions the same way. But if you're an adult, you need to be able to make positive decisions for yourself You're going to make mistakes. ADHD, as one of those chemical imbalance issues, somehow Mm -hmm. makes it more difficult for uh, a person to recognize, I made this mistake before, what am I going to do differently this time? And Mm -hmm. so they tend to repeat the same mistakes. That's what we call it. And uh, as an enabler, we are there to clean up, clean it up. But we have to teach them, show them in a way that is, because once you start dealing with adults, it's different than dealing with children under your control. But being an enabler is we want to change change the conversation to being an assistant and a supporter and an advocate. Let right. me make a couple of other comments. In terms of with the enabler, I mean, on the other side of this, in terms of with the development of executive functions, uh, statistics basically show that ADHD individuals are maturing three to five years slower in terms of pulling together all of their reasoning abilities than the average person, hmm. which basically means then that that 18-year-old is probably not going to be to the point even when they're acting and attempting to make those decisions appropriately will not fully mature until 2023. And they have the right law to make decisions for themselves at 18 and 21 that you have to remember they're probably functioning two to three years behind. So that's why... Oh, that's new information, yes. And that's why it's very important. I mean, and I'm really looking forward to this as I get through the uh, life ADHD life coaching, is to really work with the enablers to give them the tools they need in order to be the best advocate and to help their loved ones to develop better executive functions. Right. Well, we have another caller, and this is 368. You're live. You have a question or a comment? Yes, um, my question is for uh, Dr. Jones. 
And my question is regarding you being diagnosed later uh, in your adulthood. How did this affect um, you while you were going through med school and in your everyday uh, career? Um, like I said, I hit the wall in medical school. And I had been a very good student. I was valedictorian in my high school class, did well in college. But when I got to medical school, the increased demands just sort of, I couldn't ratchet up to two or three more levels that I had been able to do in the past. So as a result, I ended up having to repeat that first year of medical school. Plus, you know, I was had fallen in love with my later-to-become wife, you know, lots of distractions, and that's one of those things that ADHD people suffer from is distractions. We have to focus and hyper-focus to keep ourselves doing what we're supposed to be doing when we're supposed to do it. Other ways that it affected me um, from actually from then on is getting bored very easily, even in areas where I'm really interested initially. If the conversation strays away uh, to something that, you know, oh, why are we talking about this? I will lose concentration and literally will fall asleep in the middle of a meeting. And it was years before I could figure out, I mean, I tried doodling, I tried taking notes, I tried all sorts of things and was not able to find the right tools. Eventually, I started actually beginning to, uh, when I got a notepad, I started typing notes during the meeting and basically worked on that for a year to be able to efficiently take notes and keep up with the conversation in a meeting such that I wouldn't fall asleep. Because that typing gave me that fidgeting that I needed to do, that physical movement, plus allowed mm-hmm. me to write it down where I could use that information. Because typically when I took notes, I the notes were of such poor quality, I couldn't go back and use them anything. Plus, they probably were just tossed over in a corner somewhere, and I didn't use them because I didn't know where they were. So it helped me to keep things organized in a way that I could go back and find those notes because I would catalog them based upon the topics and the dates. So those are the kinds of tools that I used. The electronics were very, very helpful to me. I was the early adapter with Palm Pilots and all of that sort of thing in order to try to manage schedules, and meetings and so forth. Mhm. Well, did you, uh, do you find that individuals, adults with ADHD, may also attempt to self-medicate to calm themselves down, or this is not part of the behavior? That is a very common part of behavior. One of one of the things that really makes a Significant contributor to that school-to-prison pipeline is that hyperactive student in the classroom who makes multiple trips to the principal. And with teachers having such discretion in terms of how they deal with behavior, will call the police rather than mm-hmm. specific behavioral program for that child. Because one, teachers aren't taught to do that. All schools do not have psychologists where you can send this child off to be uh, evaluated. But in terms of drugs, yes, for a hyperactive person, you know, marijuana, alcohol, any of those can be used to calm them down and they will feel that they are able to function better under the influence. Mm-hmm. But again, mm-hmm. you know, that's the mission because, because when you then put that with driving, because the other issue with persons with ADHD, inattentive or hyperactive, is that impulsivity, that they think they can do things when they're impaired. They think they can do things that they've only seen but never tried before and do it as well as the person who has been trained. So there is a gross overestimation of their ability sometimes in any given situation. And that medication, that self-medication, really sort of gives them that what they expect is going to make things better. So it gives them this false sense of confidence 
that they can do mm -hmm. in contact with the law frequently, either through school from the misbehavior and police get calls, the child is taken in, even as, um, you know, in elementary school. And mm -hmm. a couple of times through that process, the child will basically end up with a record by the time they're in sixth or seventh grade. Mm -hmm. What needs to happen is parents must participate closely with those schools and talk with those teachers on a regular basis. They need to know who they are so that the, the teacher will call the parent first rather than going to outside sources. Right. And, you know, you all are really uh, presenting some very good information. Tell me, how can how can we get this information out to the public so that people could really start talking? You're talking about the prison to the pipeline. I mean, the prison pipelines, what can be done in the schools so that these kids can get the help they need, so that the parents could really understand the role that they could play as advocates for these kids. Because let's face it, we, we're the crisis with what's happening with our young people in, today. We are in crisis. What can we do? How you can reach us? Well, of course, we have our website, which is www.enabletables.com, which leads to, to a gateway of constantly flowing information about various topics related to ADHD and parenting in general. We have newsletters, we have blog posts, we also link to a number of other websites, and of course, purchasing and reading our book, which is available through uh, our website, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, Walmart, and um, bookstores across the country, independent bookstores. Um, and we encourage people to send us an email or contact us. We have a Facebook page, called, and you are free to messenger us from the Facebook page, or just send me an email. My email address is on the website, but it's audjones at aol.com, and we are happy to respond. We send everybody a poster with some reminders on it. Uh, if you contact us, you can join our newsletter list on our website. And we want to have the conversation. The conversation has to take place in families, schools, churches across the country. Well, we I just want to thank you. Yeah, you have so much. Go ahead on, uh, Larry. Yes. Um, you know, we're available for speaking engagements. You know, we can, are more than willing to talk to groups of parents, teachers, uh, counselors, in order to be able to reach this population. I mean, there's no reason why children and adolescents with ADHD should be in our prisons. They need to get the appropriate assistance through the educational institutions as well as the uh, help from uh, from additional professionals such as psychologists, their physicians, etc. So we just want to get the word out and open up that discussion around ADHD and its effects. And well, recognize gifts because the future of a person is using their gifts to become a resilient adult. Absolutely, I love that. That that is the future. And let's face it, all of you genealogists out there, you're doing your family history, Take step back and take a look. Take a look at those behaviors and, and you know, pass the word on to others that perhaps you've been an enabler and you don't even know it because right. your role has been to try to to help and fix it. Well, maybe you need to start thinking a different way. And so I just want to thank you, Audrey and Larry, for coming on the show tonight and for sharing this information with us. I, I think that your information will definitely make a difference. Well, it looks like I'm not quite ending the show yet. We do have another caller. Uh, caller, you have a question or a comment? 
723 or you you have a question or a comment? Okay, I guess she doesn't have a question or a comment. Okay, well, I just as I said before, I want to thank you all for coming on and sharing this important information with us. And I want everyone to remember your ancestors left footprints. And you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page and also at virginius.com. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. And finally, I want everyone to know that registration is now open for the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute. This institute is the only institute devoted exclusively to African American genealogy. The dates are July 9th through 11th, 2019, at the Allen County Public Library Genealogy Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. For further information, go to the Maggie website, www.maginstitute.org. So thank you so much, and I look forward to all of you joining me next week. Good night, Larry and Audrey. Good night. Good night. Thank you very much. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.